So it's been a couple of weeks since we've been going through our survey of the Gospel of John. And so it's, it'll be helpful for me to kind of refresh your memory of where we're at. Today, as we begin John chapter 6, the last chapter, we saw Jesus in Jerusalem. There's not, a men, not no mention of his disciples with him in John chapter 5, but nonetheless, they might have been there. It's just they're, they're not part of the story. Uh, but there he was in Jerusalem. He shows up where? Not in the palaces and the temples, but he shows up in that place where there's many sick and lame people gathered together uh, there at the pool of Bethesda, hoping that their lives would change. They're at that place called the House of Mercy. And there at the House of Mercy was this man who had been paralyzed for 38 years. That man had spent so long just sitting there just hoping that his circumstances would change, stirring in his um, thoughts because later we find out that his illness had been brought upon him because of some sinful practice that he had been living in. And that's why Jesus said, hey, live, leave your life of sin, let some worse thing come upon you. For 38 years, mind alive with all the regrets, wishing things were different, unable to reasonably imagine that change was even possible, until Jesus came along. And Jesus, he changes things. He changes people. In fact, Jesus changes everything. And that's what John 5 tells us. There in John 5, verse 8 and 9, Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well. He took up his bed and walked, and that day was the Sabbath. So Jesus healed the man on the Sabbath Jesus told him to take up his bed and walk on the Sabbath. And then with authority, he explained how he is the son of God and he is the Lord of the Sabbath. But now we're in John chapter 6. And in John chapter 6, this doesn't take place in Judea. This doesn't take place there uh, in the area around Jerusalem. John chapter 6, we're back in the region of the Galilee. Now, the Galilee is in the north of Israel, and when you, see, when you hear Galilee, sometimes you hear of the Sea of Galilee, or sometimes it's called the Sea of Tiberias, sometimes it's called the Lake Gennesaret, all of these different names, but don't be confused when you hear the word sea, it's not like the Red Sea, or the Dead Sea, or the Mediterranean Sea, or, you know, it's not like some salty body of water, it's a lake, it's fresh water, they just call it a sea. And so they're in that region of the Galilee. Now, you could go over to Lanai, or you could go over to Molokai, but even though you're on a different island, guess what? You're in Maui, because we're talking about Maui County. When I say the Galilee, I'm talking about a whole region that's there to the north of Israel, and that's where the Lord, you know, had a lot of his earthly ministry there in that northern region, in the Galilee. And it's an actual interesting side note for the book of John because the other gospels focus on Jesus's ministry in the Galilee. They highlight his miracles there. <clears throat> they highlight his teachings there. But John, John only records four miracles in the Galilee. There's only four that he brings attention to. These four miracles in the Galilee, the first miracle is in John chapter 2 where he turns the water into wine. That, that was his first miracle, where he showed forth his glory in John chapter 2, turning water into wine. 
Then we see in John chapter 4, the miracle of the nobleman who was from Calpurnium and his son was sick. So he made the 25, 26 mile journey to Cana of Galilee, found Jesus and told him, hey, my son is sick. And Jesus with a word healed his son back in Capernaum. And then the next two miracles are connected. They're, you would call them, you know, they're like, they're like these Siamese twin miracles. And I think it's safe to say that because the both of them occur in this chapter. And they're the miracles of the feeding of the 5,000. And then the accompanying miracle of Jesus walking on the water. I say these two miracles go together because these two miracles in this chapter are found in all four Gospels. So you might think, the Gospels record a lot of miracles. And they're beautiful. They're exciting. They're they're so encouraging. But of all the miracles that show up in all four Gospels, there's only three miracles that show up in all four Gospels. And those are the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus walking on water, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So it's pretty significant when every gospel writer is like, oh, and then there was this one. Like, I got to talk about this one. So when you see that, you cue in. Um, and just like most of Jesus' miracles, after this happens, it leads to some serious teaching. So with that said, let's look to it. John chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. He says, after these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews was near. Okay, I'm going to stop there for a second. After all these details of the setting, what are, what's the details of the setting? One, that there is a stir that Jesus has been causing. Everywhere he goes, he's changing lives. He's bringing healing and hope. And there's a great multitude that's following him. It says at that time, you know, they're following because of the signs which he had performed on those who were diseased. Man, they're going to follow Jesus. So this multitude is gathering. They're following him around the countryside. They're listening to his teachings. They're watching his wonderful ways. But then it notice that it says in verse 4, now the Passover, a feast of the Jews was near. Now that's a strange detail here. Because this is a time... When Passover is near, this is a time when the people from the northern region there of Galilee, this is when they should have been on their way to Jerusalem. They should have been on their way, on their pilgrimage, on their way up to Jerusalem. They should have been at this time singing those songs of ascent. Come, let us go up to the house of the Lord, to the city of the God of David. Come, let us draw near. Let us enter into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us enter into his courts with praise. They would have been singing those songs, and yet there's something going on in their hearts where they're like, 
yeah, maybe not this year, Jerusalem. Maybe not. Because after all, I'm, fi- I'm here in the presence of the one that my heart is being stirred that this is the one that I've been hoping in. This is the one I've been waiting for. This is the one. There's no other place I'd rather be than right here in his presence. I want to hear his words. I don't want to miss any of it. And so the disciples, they've been seeing his works in ways. They've been participating in them. They must have felt like the most uniquely blessed people on the planet. Like talk about being on the in club. You know what I mean? Like everybody else just wants to get near Jesus. You know, we read about the guy in Mark 4 that he tears the roof off of the house in Capernaum to get to where Jesus is. That's how bad people wanted to get close to Jesus. But yet here's the disciples and they get to be with him wherever he goes. The most uniquely blessed people because they got to be with him. In Mark chapter 3, it says in verse 14 through 19, then he appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. And then the list. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, the son of Zebedee. And John, the brother of James. To whom he gave the names Boadrenes, that is, the sons of thunder. Andrew and Philip. Bartholomew. Matthew. Thomas. James, the son of Alphaeus. Thaddeus. Simon the Canaanite. And Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Each of these guys, they're they're individuals. Each of these guys, they're so unique. There's no one else like these guys on the planet. They all had their own temperaments. They all had their own personalities. They all had their own experiences with Jesus. They all had their own life experiences that brought them up and shaped them into the people they were when this was written about them. They were different. I mean, look, there's some of them that are called the sons of thunder. Like, it says a little bit about their temperament. You got Matthew, who's a tax collector. I mean, all of these guys, you know, Peter, James, and John, they had a successful fishing business there in Capernaum. I mean, like, all of these guys, they're so, they're so unique. They're so individual. They're so different. And yet here they are, they're all together. And they're all following Jesus. And in the midst of them being these unique people and all these life experiences that go into shaping how they saw the world and how they handled pressure. Some of you guys have life experiences that when you find yourself under pressure, who oh, you crack. When you get under pressure, you become a volcano and you blow. And some of you, when you get under pressure, that's when you like, you start to actually like come alive. Talk about differences, right? Some people absolutely erupt under pressure and other people are like, okay, game on. This is, this is where it gets fun. I've known people that just relax when it gets crazy. And I know people when it gets crazy, they get crazy right along with it. We're all so different. 
And yet here, these disciples, they're having all of the highs of getting to minister alongside of Jesus. But now they're about to feel the heat. They're about to be presented with an impossible situation where the weight of this situation was going to seemingly rest right on their shoulders. And what are they going to do? How are they going to react? And I need to say this, God in his kindness will do that sometimes to each one of his people where you'll have these these highs of walking with Jesus and serving him. But then there's these moments where it just feels like everything is on your shoulders. What will you do? Because after all, walking with Jesus doesn't mean smooth sailing all the time. Remember what James said in James chapter one, verse two. He says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Whew. Count it all joy. Whoo, yeah. When you fall into trials. What? Count it all joy. You know, one of the first things that we teach our children in school is how to count. It's like a basic building block of education. You know, you do it with your hands. One, two, three. You do it with their food. You know, all the little things. They start to be able to count. When they can count to five, you're like, good job. They count to 10, good job. And then when you start to learn from, you move. The older you get, you move from counting to accounting. And when you get into accounting, accounting is basically the keeping track of whatever comes in and whatever goes out. And I think we've all pretty much figured out that finances aren't everything, but they're kind of a big thing. And we have all have our own personal finances of things that come in and that goes back out again, and you have to account for that. And taxes are due on Tuesday, so please don't be alarmed. <laughs> taxes are Tuesday. And some of you, when you filed your taxes, it was a happy day for you. You went in, or you did it on your computer, and you punched in all the numbers, all of the accounting that happened to process your payroll throughout the year, whether you own your own business and you've done it yourself or you've hired somebody. However it works out, you've done your taxes or you're about to do your taxes. And some of you, when you filed and you finally hit that button or the button was hit in front of you by the accountant, they go, oh, and it looks like the Fed owes you money. Yes! And the state as well. And what a happy day it is. When you find out, it's like finding money. I mean, it's your money, right? It's not like they're giving you it. Like, like okay, the government only has what it has because it takes it from you. So it, it, it doesn't generate anything. It just takes it. And so some people have been like, taxation, you're just taking my stuff. And then, you know, but anyway. So it's like finding money in your pocket when you do the laundry. Like, yay, I found a 20. 
Woohoo! Bonus! And that's kind of what like taxes, getting a return is like, yeah, but get some money back. But you're stoked. And you're happy about it before the money even hits your bank account. You just know that it's going to be there. And so you count it all joy even before the credit shows up. Because you know it's as good as what's going to, it's going to end up there eventually. And in the same way, that's what we are, that's, that should be our process with our trials. Before the end result is even in view, we can rejoice because we know that it's on its way. But, but, but not this trial. I don't have time for this trial. I don't have room in my life for this trial, not this one. And yet, God's faithful to his word. And you can count it all joy. But, but this guy, he just pulled into me while I was driving out on the road. He was on the shoulder and he pulled right into the side of my car. I don't have time for this. That's a true story. It happened to me. I was given a car. I was given a, a, a Subaru station wagon. And I loved that Subaru. Man, that thing had the most insane turning radius. Like, you didn't have to do three-point turns in a road. You could just, whoop. You'd always tear the CV boot, but man, that thing could turn. It was awesome. But it was when I lived in California, and I was driving from San Diego up to the Bible College, and I'm driving along. I'm in the slow lane, and as I'm just, it's late at night. I'm driving along, and I see this guy with his emergency flashers on the side of the road. And as I'm driving, right when I get past him, he pulls into the side of my car. I thought he threw a rock at me. I'm like, what just happened? So I pull over and the guy gets out of the car and he's like standing in the road, in the freeway, looking at the side of his car. I'm like, sir, get out of the road, get out of the road. And you know, he has Middle Eastern descent. So he's very dramatic. And the way he's like reacting, there's a family of people in the car. And then he tries to blame me for it. He's like, why did you pull into me? I'm like, I'm just going along the freeway and you've come into my car. It was a frustrating night, pretty emotional. And in my mind, I'm thinking, I don't have time for this. And so I called the insurance company and the insurance company assessed the value of the damage and they assessed the value of my car and they said that the damage was greater than the value of my car, so they totaled my car out. And they bought my car off of me for $2,500. And then I found out that I could buy my car back from them for $2,300. And so I did. No, no, no. I'm sorry. They gave me $2,500. I bought my car back from them for $200. For $200. I bought it out of impound. And then I spent $100 to buy a new headlight and I got my car running again and so I just was walking away with $2,400 in my pocket. Just So at first I'm just like, why this? I'm like, yeah, free money. What a blessing. Praise the Lord for those people that ran into the side of my car. 
It wasn't all joy the night it happened, but man, when I started to see those dollar signs, like, this is pretty cool. This is pretty cool. Then about a month later, I'm at the gas station. And as I'm at the gas station with my totaled car, I mean, it wasn't bad. It was just scuffed up on the side. It wasn't like a fancy ride, but a car that gets you from one place to another is just as effective at getting you from one place to another as one that has the bling too. And uh, so I'm at a gas station, and as I'm filling up my gas tank, this guy backs his truck up on the hood of my car. <laughs> and then he gets out of the car, and he starts yelling at me. And he's like, I hope you know that you're at fault here. And I'm like, how am I at fault? I'm filling my gas tank. And he's like, any time that you rear-end somebody, it's your fault. I'm like, if a rear-ending happens when your car's not moving and mine is, yours is the only car that moved. Well, I don't know. I don't know. But I'm like, why this? I don't have time for this. This guy's being a total jerk right now, too. And then I called my insurance company, and they assessed the damage, and they said, yeah, we're going to give you $2,000 to fix that. Are you kidding me? Thank you, Lord, for the guy that just backed up on my, on my car. My car still drives fine. And now here I am, and I'm sitting here with, you know, $4,300 in my pocket, and I'm still driving the car around. <laughs> and then I sold the car for $1,700. Like, Lord, this car pays me so much money. All of the trials, and yet, I could count it all joy. You know... Let's see this counting it all joy and the struggle of that. Let's see that in action here with the disciples in verse 5 and 6 of John 6. It says, Then Jesus lifted up his eyes and seeing a great multitude coming towards him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Jesus lifts up his eyes. He sees the multitude. He sees each individual in that multitude. He sees you. He knows the need. He knows your need lifting up his eyes, seeing the multitude. And here in John, it says that he addresses Philip. But over in the Gospel of Matthew, it says there in verse, chapter 14, verse 15 and 16, when it was evening, the disciples came to him saying, this is a deserted place and the hour is already late. Send the multitude away that they may go into the villages and buy themselves food. But Jesus said to them, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. So everyone that's there, Jesus and the disciples, they all lift up their eyes. They all see the multitude. But when they see the multitude, the disciples say, send the multitudes away. So everybody saw the people. But they also saw the problem. Lots of people. 
Now, on the one hand, lots of people are a blessing. But on the other hand, it also brings its challenges with it. It reminds me of the proverb, Proverb 14, 4. It says, where no oxen are, the trough is clean. But much increase comes by the strength of an ox. So on the one hand, if you're wanting a clean trough, a good way to keep that trough clean is to not have any oxen. Man, you sure, like those of you who don't have kids, your car is probably very clean. And then you have kids and then you're like, how did this happen? I remember one time we were driving and it was, I hadn't been in the backseat of my car for a while and I get in the backseat and I look and it's like, the kids had drawn a smiley face in crayon on the headrest of the car, the car seat. Like, oh, <laughs> the headrest. You know, where there's no oxen, the trough is clean. But when the oxen start showing up, oh, the trough gets kind of messy, doesn't it? An increase is by the strength of an ox. So there is these logistical challenges that come along with these blessings. And here they were. It's late. They're far from town. The people are hungry. It says in Matthew, whoops, send the multitudes away. Their initial reaction, how should we deal with the problem? Keep sending it downriver. <laughs> That's a nice problem right there. Glad it's for someone else. That's their problem, not my problem. And then Jesus says, no, they don't have to go away. You feed them. So now suddenly, when they're trying to like, that's not my problem, Jesus is like, whoa, 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 whoa. Your problem. Suddenly, it's on all of their shoulders. And all of these individuals and all of their upbringings and all of the ways that they're prone to react to the pressure. Jesus says in Matthew, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. And then now here in John, he says to Philip there in verse 5, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this was to test them. Look at it in verse 6. But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Remember James. James 1, verses 2 and 3. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Count it all joy. Why? Because he's testing your faith. Count it all joy because he's testing your faith. Verse 6 of John 6, he said this to test him. And yet he himself knew what he was going to do. So Jesus already has the answer he already knows the solution, but now he's putting the problem to Philip. So through experience, know this. The testing, the testing 
when I was in high school, I was a terrible student. I refused to do anything at home. No homework. Like when school, the bell was over, school was over, and now I'm off to do bad punk kid things. But I knew if I was going to continue to do bad punk kid things when the bell was ring, when the bell rang and I was free from school, if I was going to still pass, if I had any shot at passing, I had to listen super good in class, hoping that my teacher would say something that would be relevant to the test. And so I learned the game of like what to cue in on and what the teacher was saying so that I could test good. And that's, I mean, then I could just barely pass. That's how I got through most of my classes. What's the subject of the testing that James talks about? The subject of the testing, it's not math. The testing of your math. The testing of your science. The testing of your physics or chemistry. Nope, none of those things. It's the testing of your faith. Praise God that it's not the testing of your skill. It's not the testing of your strength. It's not the testing of your Bible knowledge. It's not the testing of how you know, creative you are or how persuasive you are or how much ingenuity you have. And yet so often the model of church in the day and age that we're living in is, let's see, how good are you at marketing? That will be the secret of your success, but God doesn't care about testing your marketing skills. He doesn't care about testing, you know, like the size of your intellect. He doesn't care. Like, what is he testing? He is testing your faith. And he's testing it to refine it because he cares about it. He cares about your faith. Whether or not you're going to trust Jesus in whatever it is that you're going through, it's a test of faith. And you know what a test of faith looks like? It looks like this famous psalm, Psalm 23, verse 4. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So imagine you're walking. You're walking there with Jesus. And as you're walking, you say, Hey, what's that up ahead? I I see something up there. Oh, yeah? What is it? What is that? What is that? And then Jesus says to you, you know what that is? That is the shadow of death itself. Whoa. That sounds pretty bad. Maybe we should play it safe. Let's steer clear of that. That's probably what I'd say. That's the shadow of death itself? Uh Uh-huh. Let's go somewhere else. No, we're not going to go somewhere else. We're going to go through it. Are you kidding me? Yep, we're going to walk right through it. Will you trust me? That's That's the shadow of death itself. Yep, we're going through it. I'm going to lead you. Will you go with me? Will you trust me? See, I want you to know that no matter what it is that you're going through, like 
He hasn't left you. He holds you in the palm of his hand. I love the fact that no matter how low you go, that still underneath are the everlasting arms. Deuteronomy 33:27. The eternal God is your refuge. And underneath are the everlasting arms. He shall thrust out the enemy from before you, and he shall say, destroy them. Look at, he is the eternal God, and upholding you are everlasting arms. Like no beginning and no end. There's nothing temporary about like the way that he guards his people. He knows all the details. Matthew 10, verse 29 through 31, are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. Like he knows what you're facing today. And like the miracle of water into wine, and like these guys here, hungry and desperate people, that are there that day, he knows how he's going to handle the situation before the situation even arises, before it's even made into a question. He knows what he's going to do. God already has an answer, the answer to the question in hand before the question is even asked. God is always ahead of the game. During first service, uh, Milani mentioned a conversation that her and Hannah were having about Abraham. We talked about Abraham at at the men's study a couple of weeks ago and how God called Abraham to take now his son, his only son, Isaac, and to offer him. Abraham didn't have a Bible that he could go read. All he knew was these promises that led up to him having a son. That was like the entirety of his scriptural knowledge. He crossed over from polytheism. He knew about the forefathers a little bit, and yet he knows he's going to have a son, and God has called him to get out of his hometown and to a place that he's going to show him. And after all of God's faithfulness, now he says, okay, now the God who blessed you in the midst of impossibility with you being way too old to have a kid and your wife being way too old to have a kid, and now you have this miracle kid, I want you to offer this kid to me. And Hebrews tells us that Abraham figured, well, I guess God's going to raise him from the dead. And so in obedience, he begins to take his son to this place of sacrifice. And when he gets there, God, what just happens to be caught in the bushes? A ram stuck in the bushes with his horns, you know, like, wow, what a perfect time for you to be providing for me right now, God. I would have liked it if you would have provided that ram at the door of my tent, but you kept me sweating the whole way up this mountain. (laughs) You kept me like when the knife is being raised and you're like, oh, wait, 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 look over there. There's your sacrifice. Whoo. You knew what you were going to do, didn't you, God? He always does. He knows all the details. Elijah being fed by ravens. God knows what he's going to do. He always does. 
And you know what we, his people, we're called to live by? The just shall live by their creativity. No, no, by faith. We're supposed to live by faith. Look in verse 7 through 9 here. And Philip answered, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a lad who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? So first of all, check out Philip's answer. Jesus turns to Philip. He already knows what he's going to do. He turns to Philip to test him. Buy them bread. And look how Philip answers. Now, if you took this situation and say you just took any like run-of-the-mill atheist, someone who has no belief in God, there is no God, my life is a big accident, and my morality is borrowed from Christianity. Because it is, right? If everything's a big accident, there is no objective right or wrong. So they're just living in a Christian world, agreeing that Christian principles are the best, and, but there is no objective standard. Ask an atheist. Atheist, here's a multitude, and they're all super hungry. There's 5,000 men out there, not counting their women and children. That's a lot of people. So, how are you going to feed them? And you know what an atheist will say? You're going to use money and you're going to buy bread, but the amount of money is not enough to meet that need. You know what Philip said? Philip said the same thing that an atheist would say. Why is it that when we're not living according to faith, it's all according to like ones and zeros and numbers and stuff? Like it's all about like how it adds up. Atheists do that. And yet here's a situation, and man, I love the stories that don't exactly calculate. <laughs> you know, you read these testimonies of missionaries and you're like, that's an awesome story. But it's a story of them living by faith and not by mathematics. They're living by faith, not in light of their own personal resources. Philip, in this situation, was thinking that the problem had to be answered in his own strength, according to what he had on hand. And, man, we get ourselves in weird situations when we think that that's the extent of what God can do. And so, Andrew, Andrew does a little bit better. Andrew's like, well, <laughs> there's this lad... And he has five barley loaves and two small fish. But like, what is that among so many people? Five loaves and two small fish. But listen to this. It's very specific there. He says five barley loaves. And now I want to take you on a little detour. And I want to talk to you about barley. Okay, barley. Let me talk to you about barley. Barley in the Bible, there's a mention of this end times situation where it says in Revelation 6, 6, I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, 
a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and the wine. It describes a time in which, like throughout the Bible and the parables, you see that these guys would go out to labor in a field and they would agree for a day's wage, that day's wage would be a denarius. So a fair wage for a person working all day long would be that particular measure of money. Not how much per hour, how much per day, and the amount would be a denarius. And now it's, this is describing a time in which inflation is so out of hand that you would work all day, all day long for a quart of wheat or all day long for three quarts of barley. Interestingly, that there's no um, attack or no like no curse or plague on the oil and the wine because those are luxury items. And whatever's going on in this time, like the upper class, we they will keep on rolling with whatever weird stuff they want. It's only the normal people that are struggling here with crazy inflation. Now, my point isn't like end times. My point is to to lay out for you like the exchange rate on these different grains. On the one hand, you could work all day for a quart of wheat. And a quart is enough for three meals for a working man. With wheat, you could do all kinds of cool stuff. You can make wheat flour, and then with the wheat flour, you can make pancakes for breakfast, and then you can make biscuits for lunch, and then you can make tortillas for dinner, and you're like, whoa, yeah, this is great. You can make fancy desserts if you want. It's a, it's a more refined grain. So a working man, a single working man could work all day just to feed himself for that day. Or you can get three quarts of barley for your day's wage. So you can get a better grain for all day of work, or you can get a lesser grain and feed your family. And that's kind of the option. So what am I saying here? I'm saying that According to the exchange rate there of that passage, barley's a lesser grain. It's a lesser grain. And here, this boy shows up with barley loaves. Now look, they, they need a miracle. They need a miracle. And Jesus knows that they need a miracle. But you'd think, if he's going to work a miracle anyway... Why not do it with something better? Like, you're already going to do the miracle. Like, why would you use this lesser loaf? Like, it's not even all that tasty. You know, you, you could do flour. You could do the miracle in the better thing. You could do miracle in the stronger thing. Or in the more, like you know, aware, the, the, the more able situation. You could work the miracle when it's still comfortable. But why do you do it in the lesser thing? Why do you work the miracle in the weaker situation or the lesser situation? Why do you do it there? 
If you're going to do work a miracle anyway, at least you could do is work it with some wheat flour. But yet you decide to show up and work the wonder in the lesser grain. Now let's go way back. Because it reminds me of a guy named Gideon. There's a guy named Gideon in the Bible. You guys remember the story of Gideon? So this guy Gideon... It was in the time of the judges. The people would forget about God. They'd go on living their wicked, sinful lifestyle. And in the midst of that wicked, sinful lifestyle, God would put them under oppression. They would lose their individual sovereignty. They would come under the oppression of another um, kingdom. And then they would be in such a situation that they would remember the Lord. They would cry out to the Lord. And the Lord would raise up a deliverer. And that cycle would happen over and over again. Well, on this stage of the cycle... The people had started serving idols. They forgot about the Lord. And now the Lord has raised up the Midianites to, um, to subdue them. The Midianites, they were descendants of, of, um, of <laughs> Ishmael. No, no, no. Of Esau. Sorry, I knew it would come. Descendants of Esau and of Idiom, of Anyway, Idumea, yeah, he was the Edomite. Anyway, no, it's all coming back. It'll get there. Nonetheless, these guys, they had, they had really developed an advanced military technology. And by this advanced military technology, they were able to just take over whatever they wanted. Their, their military advancement was the camel. A camel. Because they could ride their camels in against horses and chariots and all the horses would freak out in the presence of the camels. And they'd just lose. The other thing is, is that they could, they could fill their camels up with fuel and then travel a very long journey because of God's amazing dromedary. Um, and so with Gideon and the Midianites... God was speaking to Gideon, hey, you're going to, I'm going to raise you up to overthrow their oppression. Remember, Gideon was afraid and God, you know, did the, the, um, the fleece wet one day with dry ground, dry one day with wet ground, but still he was fearful. And so God said, well, go sneak into the camp of the Midianites. And in Judges chapter 7, verse 12 through 14, now the Midianites and the Amalekites all the people of the east were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts and their camels were without number as the sand by the seashore in multitude. And when Gideon had come, there was a man telling a dream to his companion and said, I've had a dream. To my surprise, a loaf of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and it came to a tent and struck it so that it fell down and overturned and the tent collapsed. Then his companion answered and said, this is nothing else but the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. Into his hand, God has delivered Midian and the whole camp. Because you had a dream of a bran muffin that happened to like find its way into your tent? Like, really, buddy? That's your nightmare? But it was a barley loaf. It rolled into my tent. The tent fell down. Oh, we're all going to die. We're all going to die. What's God doing here? He's working a miracle in a barley loaf. A barley loaf, this is this, this lesser thing. 
Surely a barley loaf is not a military match against camels as numerous as the sand of the seashore. Here comes the Midianite army with all their camels, and here comes my muffin. (laughs) What do you got, Midianites? You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) that freaked them out so much that when Gideon and his ragtag small army came that one day, they were so afraid that the Midianites began to turn on each other. Like that, really? That was it? But yet, so often we're just like that barley cake. Gideon might have felt like that, thin and brittle and cheap, maybe even a little stale. And yet behind him was this mighty unseen wind of God's spirit making him and his army invincible. And that was enough to finally encourage Gideon. And it should be enough to encourage us. Like when you're called to something that seems impossible, like defeating sin in your life, like that sin that you know, just, you just keep going back to it like a dog to its vomit. You're like, that sounds so gross. That's the way the Bible describes it. You just think it's appetizing because you've learned to love your sin and God wants you to hate it. God wants you to see it for what he sees it as. But you keep going back and you're like, I can't break my addiction to it. It's impossible. When God calls you to something impossible, when God calls you to like fulfill some task for his glory, guess what? By yourself, you can do nothing. And God doesn't expect that you should. But there's nothing that you cannot accomplish if God Almighty takes hold of you and carries you forward. Like Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Jesus says to him, buy bread. (laughs) There's nowhere we can buy bread. But Jesus says it to test him, knowing what he would do. Look at verses 10 through 15 as we close up our time together. It says, then Jesus said, make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place so that the men sat down in number about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples and the disciples to those sitting down. And likewise of the fish as much as they wanted. So they were filled, and he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost or nothing is wasted. Therefore, they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Nothing mentioned of gathering up fragments of fish, right? Where's the big miracle? I mean, everything's a miracle here, but they get the leftovers of barley loaves. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. Telling you this week, the last week, I've... This, this concept has just been so in my mind. Because it's like, I wonder, why does the Lord just want to keep me weak? 
Why does he want to keep me where I like have so many things going on that I'm not really good at any one thing? Like, why doesn't he make me strong and good at those things? And then in the middle of my, my strength and my, you know, ability, then he can work the miracle. But no, he says, no, I'm going to keep you weak. I'm going to keep you in that lesser place. And watch me in that lesser place show up. I'm going to keep you in that lesser grain. Watch me there and I'll show up. Watch me to where what Paul would say, then I'm going to, mag I'm going to glorify God. I'm going to rejoice in my weaknesses because when I'm weak, that the power of Christ rests upon me. The Lord keeps bringing us back to that place to show up. And yet here we see it. That as they walk away, when they came into the problem, each of them felt the weight of it on their own shoulders. You give them something to eat. I want to send the problem away. And yet you're, you're resting it square on my shoulders. He turns to Philip. Where are you going to buy the bread? There's nowhere we can buy this bread. and We don't even have enough money for these people. Again, it's square on his shoulders. And yet they all walked away. They walked into this thing empty-handed. They all walked out with how many basketfuls remaining? Twelve. Why is that such a significant number? How many disciples were there? They all walked in empty-handed and they all walked out with their own basketful of visible, physical demonstration of like, hey, you know when you have nothing? When you have very little, even when you have very little and you give that to the Lord, in God's hands, in God's hands, little becomes much. Jesus watched his frustrated disciples as they tried to solve the problem, but he knew what he was intending to do. He wanted to teach them this lesson of faith and surrender. And I think he wants to teach us the same thing. Give what you have to Jesus. He took a simple lunch, blessed it, and shared it. And the miracle of multiplication was in his hands. And please remember that. The miracle of multiplication is in his hands. That Jesus broke the bread and gave the pieces to the disciples, and they in turn fed the multitudes. As his servants... We are simply the distributors. We are not the manufacturers. We are not the man, like you are not the maker of the miracle. Jesus is. And if we give what we have to him, he'll bless it and give it back to us for the feeding of others. I love the fact that Jesus still has compassion on the hungry multitudes and he still says to his church, no, you don't just send that problem downstream. They're your problem. You feed them. Give them something to eat. And when we give Christ what we have, like we never lose. We always end up with like more blessing than what we started with. And so like he says in Isaiah, I counsel you to come and buy of me bread without money. Bread without money. Just come to him with faith.
Don't be looking at the, 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 the equation of the numbers like there's not enough here. Look to the Lord. And let him work the miracle in the barley loaf, in that lesser situation. The weaker thing. But he keeps showing up there.